0: Church, you can go and grab your Bibles and start opening up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 together this morning. And let's begin by bowing together for a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this morning. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for the, the fact and the promise that in Jesus our sin, though, It was red like crimson, that it can be washed whiter than the snow, and so we're thankful that as we stand before you today with our faith in Christ, that we stand before you forgiven, we stand before you clean, we stand before you accepted, so uh, we do come to sing and wonder at the grace that you've shown us, that you have washed us in your blood and presented our souls as righteous, and so God, thank you for that grace you've shown us, Lord, thank you for the gift of your Spirit who illuminates your word, who regenerates hearts, who does the work of sanctification. And God, we pray that that in grace you would see fit to do that this morning. And so, Lord, I realize I don't have anything to offer that would bring any real change. But Lord, through the power of your spirit, you do change and you do grow and you do make alive. And Father, we pray that you would see fit to do that today. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, church, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And uh, that means two chapters left. We have uh, made it through the first ten chapters. We've been studying through this for quite a few months now. And uh, Lord willing, after today we have two services left, two sermons left in Ecclesiastes. And this has been a, a, a wonderful study for me personally. I think Ecclesiastes is, is one of the more unusual books that I have ever preached through. Um, there is a, a rawness to Ecclesiastes. Solomon in this book ask hard questions, he never sugarcoats anything. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, referred to Ecclesiastes as the truest of all books. And what he meant by that is that there's just such a raw honesty to this. It's almost like Solomon, as an old man, has opened up his personal diary and he is letting us read over his shoulders. He's letting us read about all his regrets in life. He's letting us read about all the mistakes that he had made in life. And we find out as we read that there was a big portion of Solomon's life in which he had ignored God. He had ignored God, done his own thing, and he was convinced he could find something on his own that would make life worth living. And yet Solomon's conclusion to that journey is that apart from God, everything in this world is vanity. That means apart from God, life is empty Apart from God, life is meaningless. We were made to live with God at the center. We were made to live with our lives connected to God. So that Solomon says, apart from God, it's like trying to grab hold of the wind. You can live life without God, but you'll miss the point of life without God. Or or another way to say it is that life without God is a life without substance. Life without God is a life that lacks any real substance core. And so it's knowing God, Solomon is saying, it's knowing God that makes life worthwhile. That's the theme of this book. I'll say it again. It is knowing God that makes life worthwhile. That's the theme of Ecclesiastes. But chapters 10 and 11 are a little bit different. So now that Solomon has told us what it is that makes life worth living, it's knowing God, Solomon now turns his attention to telling us How to Live a Worthwhile Life. So it's only life with God that's worth living, but once that's in place, once God is at the center, there's a way God calls us to live that pleases Him. And so Solomon is trying to highlight in this book, or these chapters at least, how we're now called to live as God's people. Um, There's a way God instructs us to live so that our lives really matter. So let me get at it this way. We're three chapters or two chapters from finishing. And if what you take away from the book of Ecclesiastes is just, hey, you need to make sure God's part of your life. If what you take away from Ecclesiastes is the idea, hey, you just need to make sure, don't forget the faith piece. Make sure you include faith in your life. If that's your takeaway from this book, you've missed the whole point of the book. Because the point of Ecclesiastes is not that you need to include God among everything else in your life. The point of Ecclesiastes is that God is king over everything else in your life. And as king, he gives commands into every other area of your life. And wisdom is learning to live life in light of those commands. It's living life under the weight of God's authority. It's living life under God's kingly rule. And so this section, chapters 10 and 11, is a section that's all about wisdom. Solomon is telling us how to live our lives God's way. And since God is the one who made us, it is only as we live God's way that we find real purpose and meaning in our lives. Living God's way is how we live a life that really matters. And that's what we want, right? God's given you one life. And so the last thing you and I want to do is waste it. God's given you one life, so we don't want to spend it on empty pursuits. God's given us one life, and so we don't want to miss the opportunity God has given us. We want to milk this life for all that it's worth. But that's easier said than done, because we are in a fallen world, and we're in a world that's filled with uncertainty. And so the question in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 is... How do we live a meaningful life in a world that's filled with so much hardship and in a world that's filled with so much uncertainty? How do we live a life that matters in such a hard, unsure world? that's what he's going to get at in these eight verses. So if your Bible's open to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, follow along with me. We're going to read the entirety or most of the chapter, the first eight verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Solomon writes, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Truly the light is sweet, and it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Now I know that seems to be some very disconnected proverbs, but I want to sum everything Solomon says up here under four key commands. So he's given us instruction on how to live life God's way, four commands that he gives us. Number one, take appropriate risk. Take appropriate risk. But because we live in such a messed up world, we can be tempted to just sort of curl up in the corner, right? If I do this or if I do that, something bad might happen. So we end up not doing anything at all we can get so consumed with safety and security that we spend our lives watching it all unfold from the sideline. And so what Solomon's doing in the first two verses is he's urging us not to do that. So Solomon says in verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Now what in the world does that mean? Cast your bread upon the waters. Well, the, the word cast means to, to send out or let loose. And it's probably a business analogy. The NIV, I think, rightly translates it. Send your grain across the sea. Now follow with me. One of the most lucrative ways you could invest your money in Solomon's Day is you could invest your money in, in the shipping industry. Where You could invest, you could help, help build and buy a fleet of ships, and with those ships you could send your bread, you could send your grain, you could send your goods to other ports around the world and in doing that you could make a huge profit and then from those foreign uh, ports you could buy goods and bring them home and sell them at another huge profit so that that sort of import-export business was one of the most profitable investments you could make in Solomon's life. In fact, Solomon knew something about that, didn't he? If you've been here on, on Sunday nights we studied Solomon's life in First Kings, and Solomon was known as one of the richest men in the world in his day. And how did Solomon make his money? He made his money in exactly this way: he had an alliance with the king of Tyre, a guy named Hiram, and together they built a whole fleet of ships and they sent their goods out all across the Mediterranean. And Solomon through that became filthy rich. Listen to how it said in First Corinthians, excuse me, First Kings, chapter ten verses 22 and 23. It says, for the king, and the king is talking about here, Solomon, for the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came back, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys, foreign exotic animals and goods, in other words. So King Solomon surpassed All the kings of the earth and riches and wisdom. So Solomon's point when he says, send out your bread on the water, his point is that kind of investment can be very profitable. But that kind of investment was also risky because if you invest your money in building ships, what might happen to those ships? They they couldn't pull up the Weather Channel app and see if a tropical storm was moving in. So there was the chance you might invest in ships... And there was always the possibility those ships might be lost at sea. So if you send out your goods, you might make a profit, but there was risk involved in it. Not to mention, if you invested in one of these businesses, not only was there risk, it also took a long time to get the reward. When we read 1 Kings just then, did you notice how often Solomon's ships came back? It says they came back once every three years. So you're sending out ships to buy and trade and you're only reaping the harvest. It takes three years to get the reward. And what's happening during those three years? Are you getting regular text messages updating you on how the trip's going? Do you get a delivery notification when the cargo has reached the port? No, you have no idea what's going on. So you send it out, you send out your goods, you make this investment, and then you're just left waiting to see if there's going to be a reward. But, Solomon says, even though there are risk, he says, cast out your bread. And the point he's making is, are there risk involved in doing that sort of investment? Yes, but as long as we're living in a fallen world, make sure you get this, as long as we're living in a fallen world, there will always be risk. You cannot get the risk out of the equation. Unless you know the future, every decision you and I make will entail risk. So Solomon's saying, if we're going to accomplish anything in life, we have to take appropriate risk. We have a a way that we say it today. The The proverb we sometimes use is, nothing ventured, what's the last part of it go? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Well, that's Solomon's point. Now, his point here is not that we should be foolish risk takers. Solomon's not saying, okay, it's just risky, so get your life savings, go to the roulette table, and bet it all on black. That's not what Solomon's saying. That would be a foolish risk. But Solomon is urging us here to take wise risks, because our tendency usually is not to go to the extreme of taking foolish risks, Our tendency often is to look at the world and say, man, the world is dangerous. The world is uncertain. And so we just kind of ball up in our little cocoon. We just hold on to everything we have and squeeze the life out of it. Safety and security become our idols so that we never turn anything loose. We never try anything hard. We never step out and take any kind of risk. And Solomon is saying, if, if that's the way you live, that's a good way to not accomplish much at all in your life. Yes, if you send out ships, they may sink. But if you don't send out ships, you'll never make a profit. So Solomon's saying, you have to be willing to use a basketball analogy. Imagine you're playing a game of basketball and you're afraid to ever shoot. Because if you shoot, a lot of bad things could happen. I mean, if you shoot, there's a good chance you're going to miss. And, and there's worse than that. You might shoot and your shot get blocked. Or you might shoot and shoot an air ball and embarrass yourself. And so you decide to make sure you don't embarrass yourself. You're just never going to shoot. Well, that will ensure that you never miss a shot. But what else will that ensure? That will also ensure you never score. So the way basketball coaches say it sometimes is, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And so what Solomon is essentially saying here is, when it comes to life, you have to be willing to shoot. And you realize that you can never take all the risk out of this life because you and I can't see into the future. So everything we do entails a certain level of risk. And you might think, no, I'm, I'm avoiding risk entirely. I'm just going to stay home all the time. So no risk for me. Well, if, if that's the path you take, You better make sure you stay out of the bathroom because about 250,000 people die every year slipping in their bathroom. And you better stay out of the kitchen because about 50% of all household injuries happen in the kitchen. You get the point I'm making? It's impossible to eliminate risk in life. We're in a broken world that's filled with risk. And so what we want to do is take appropriate risk for the right things. So Solomon is urging us not to always play it safe. Not to watch life from the bleachers. Get in the game. Live your life with a courageous faith. The way William Carey, the great missionary, said it, is that here's how we should live our life. He said, you should live your life expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God. Right? You've got to get off the sideline to do that. Think of, we've read quite a few Christian biographies in our book club as a church of wonderful Christian men and women, pastors and missionaries and business people. Every single one of the Christian men and women we look back on in admiration are men and women who did hard things. They're men and women who stepped out. They're they're men and women who took appropriate risk. Many of them are, are men and women who put their own lives on the line for what they fought felt was worth it. We read a, a biography years ago about John Patton. John Patton was a missionary from Scotland who was determined to get the gospel to a series of islands in the South Pacific. And he was determined to go there even though he knew there were tribes on those islands who were cannibalistic tribes. They had killed and eaten missionaries who had gone there before. But he was determined that they needed the gospel, and so that's what he gave his life doing. Or think of maybe our Southern Baptist favorite, Lottie Moon, all four foot nine inches of her, determined that she's going to leave her home in Virginia and she's going to get the gospel into inland China. Or, or think maybe of the Apostle Paul. You remember in Paul's life when he was determined he needed to go to Jerusalem for ministry and everybody around Paul was saying, No, don't. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you and they're going to kill you. And do you remember Paul's response? Paul said, I don't, I don't even count my life dear to myself. I just want to finish the ministry that the Lord has called me to. Now, why would Paul take that kind of risk? Well, Paul and Lottie Moon and John Patton. We're willing to take appropriate risk in this life because they knew that they faced no eternal risk. You understand what I mean by that? We're willing to face risk in this life for the right things because we realize we face no risk in eternity. So I may face persecution in this life. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you're persecuted for my sake, great is your reward in heaven. I may face hardship in this life. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says you might face peril and nakedness and famine and sword. That's risk in life. But what does Paul say right after that? Yeah, you may face peril and nakedness and famine and sword, but, Paul says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the risks are there, but the reward is secure. So let me sum this point up by, by asking the question this way. What scares you more in life? Risking your life or wasting your life? Well, Solomon's point in this first first verse is don't waste your life. When he says cast your bread on the water to make sure you have a chance for a reward, he's advocating for a certain kind of worldview. Figure out what you can invest your life in, what you can invest your resources in, what you can invest your time in that brings the best return, that matters for eternity and put yourself out there for it. Don't spend your whole life playing everything close to your vest. And I would just add, and we want to make sure as Christian parents we raise our kids that way. We want to raise kids encouraged to do hard things, especially hard things for the sake of Christ. There's a lot of research that would say that the current generation, Generation Z, that, that, that's those who were born from 1996, 97 to about 2012, a lot of research indicates that Generation Z is the most risk averse generation in American history. The Generation Z has just an inbred, they, they stay away from taking risk. And there's lots of things they point to as proof to that. But one of the things researchers point to as proof to that is driver's license rates. So it used to be when a kid turned 16, they couldn't get to the DMV fast enough. They wanted to get there. They were ready to get their license. You couldn't hold them back from the next day getting their driver's license. But it's not that way anymore. Only, only 25% of 16-year-olds in Generation Z have their license. Only 45% of 17-year-olds in Generation Z get their driver's license. There was an article in the Washington Post describing this, and it said, many members of Generation Z say they haven't gotten license because they're afraid of getting into accidents or of driving at all. Now, I'm not saying getting a driver's license is the be-all, end-all, and if you don't get a license at 16, there's something wrong. But my point is, it's indicative of a bigger trajectory, and it's a trajectory that I don't think is good. We don't want to raise our kids in bubble wrap. We want to be wise parents who, who raise wise kids and we want to raise kids who live life to the fullest. We don't want to raise kids who are afraid to do hard things. We don't, we don't want to raise kids who never take any risks. We want to raise kids who live with a courageous faith. Those are the people who do things with their life that matters. Okay, that's Solomon's encouragement. Cast out your bread on the water. And then he, he adds in verse 2, I think this kind of is an addendum to verse 1. He says in verse 2, Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. So verse 1 urges us to take risk. Verse 2 is reminding us to make sure we take risk wisely. Solomon says, you don't know what evil, or that could be translated disaster, you don't know what disaster may come. So Solomon says, give a portion to seven or eight. In other words, Solomon is saying, diversify. Don't don't just invest in one ship because that one ship might sink and everything's lost. Invest in seven or eight of them. We also have a saying that we use that parallels this. We say, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Well, that's that's what Solomon is urging us to do here. So his point is, verse 1, take risk, appropriate risk. And then his point in verse 2 is, Take risk wisely. That's how you maximize the life that God's given you. First point. Here's the second point. Number two, learn to live with the uncertainty. Learn to live with uncertainty. Look at verse 3 now. Solomon says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Solomon is describing some of the things that happen that are out of our control. So if you're working outside, you may keep your eye on the clouds, on the weather, but you don't have any control over the weather. The rain falls when the rain falls. And and trees collapse when and where the tree decides under God's providence to collapse. Think about it. Have you ever had a tree fall in your yard? When we were living over here on Cockwood, there was a tree in our neighbor's yard that, that one day collapsed and tore down our fence and fell across the, one of the sheds in the backyard and crushed the roof on the shed. And, and that tree did not send me an RSVP notice before it failed. I didn't get a vote. It didn't ask for my opinion before It collapsed. That tree fell as the tree fell. It was out of my control. The wind blows as the wind blows. The rain falls as the rain falls. In other words, most of life is out of your control. And let me add this. And life rarely provides the perfect circumstances. So what do we do about that? Well, here's what we don't do about it. Look at verse 4. He gives a parable, a little illustration. He says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So do you get the picture? It's a farming analogy, and he describes a farmer who is watching the wind to decide when he's going to sow his field. Because how did you sow a field in the ancient world? By hand, you put a big sack over your shoulder filled with seed and then you walk through your your field and you just scattered the seed by hand as you walked. And so a strong wind could wreak havoc on your sowing. If it's blowing really, really hard, it can blow that seed into an area you don't want it. Or if it's blowing really, really hard, it can keep the seed from falling on the area you want it to fall in. And so is describing a farmer who's getting ready to sow, but before he does, he's waiting on the perfect wind conditions. Because if the wind's not just right, it might mess up his sowing of the field. And so he waits and he waits on the perfect wind conditions that never come. And so he never actually gets the field planted. It's like he's sitting on his couch, watching the weather channel, waiting for it to show zero wind speed, and he never actually ends up getting off the couch because the perfect wind condition never comes or go to the other end of the farming season. Now it's time for him to harvest his crop. But he doesn't want to harvest his crop as long as there's the chance of rain. But every day he goes outside, and no matter what day it is or where he looks, there's always an ominous cloud somewhere on the horizon. Every day it looks like there's always the chance of rain. So he just keeps waiting until finally he waits and he waits and he waits until eventually the crop rots in the field. You get the point? Solomon's point is you're never going to get the perfect conditions in life. If you're, waiting, if you're waiting for the perfect job, you'll probably stay unemployed. If you're waiting for the perfect time to have kids, you'll probably end up waiting forever. I was thinking this week, there was a, there was a married couple in the church that I grew up in, so this is probably 35 years ago, And they had decided that they were not going to have kids because there was just too much uncertainty in the world. Life was, the world was already so bad, they said, who knew how, this was in the 1980s, the world was already so bad, there was no telling how bad it might be by the time their kids became adults. And so life was just too uncertain. It was too potentially dangerous for them to bring kids into the world. And so they decided because of that, they would not have kids. Well, that's what Solomon is telling us here not to do. If you go through life waiting for everything to be just right, it needs to be just right before I start a family and just right before I make that move and just right before I make that investment and just, just right before I get involved in that ministry and just right before I go on that mission trip, you'll probably end up waiting forever. You'll probably never actually end up doing anything. We sometimes, I'm giving you some modern proverbs that parallel, we sometimes call it, paralysis by analysis. You spend so much time analyzing everything to find the perfect conditions and to try to eliminate all the risk. You spend so much time analyzing it all, you never actually act. You never get to the task of actually doing it. When um, our kids were much younger, this was probably 10 or 12 years ago, for our family vacation one summer, we went on a trip to, to visit my brother's family. He lives just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And so while we were there, all the kids were young. He has two sons of his own. And so we were finding different places to go to keep the kids busy and different activities. And one of the days, we drove up a couple hours north into uh, southern Missouri. And there was this place in southern Missouri called the Offsets. It was an old, old rock quarry. And eventually in this rock quarry, they had hit a spring. And the spring had filled up the quarry into this, this not huge, but maybe seven or eight acre lake. And so people would go there now to to swim in this lake that had once been a quarry. But people didn't really go there to swim in the lake. Um, Because it had been a quarry, it had cliffs all around the lake. And so some of them were maybe 15 or 20 feet high, and then some of the cliffs were like 65, 70 feet high. And you could go up on these cliffs, and you could jump. The lake was super deep, and you could jump from the cliffs down into the water. And it was so interesting to watch people go up to the highest cliff because there was almost always an inverse relationship between how long they waited and whether or not they actually ended up jumping. So what I mean is that people who would walk up to the edge of the cliff and they would stand there forever analyzing everything. They'd walk up and look and then they'd walk back and they'd come back and they'd look and you can see their brains turning and thinking of every outcome and should I jump with one foot or two and do I hold my breath right away or do I wait to just before I hit the water and Everything is spinning in their mind. Those people almost never actually ended up jumping. It was the people who had already made up their mind in advance. They they knew they were going to be scared, but they had already thought it out, and they just walked up and jumped. Those were the ones who ended up doing it. Well, Solomon is saying something very similar. It's like he's looking at us and going, jump. Jump. Don't just spend your whole life standing there as if thinking that you can analyze it enough and all the risk will disappear. You can spend so much time doing that that you never actually do anything that matters. You can spend so much time thinking of every possible thing that could go wrong that you never do anything. Again, there will always be things in life that are out of our control. There will always be things in life with risk entailed. So just do what you can, where you are, with what God's put in front of you. Get busy. That's what Solomon is saying. Maybe the best New Testament parallel to this. You remember the story, uh, the parable of the talents that Jesus gave in the New Testament, where there's this wealthy landowner, and he is, he is leaving for a while, but before he leaves, he has three servants, and he entrusts to each one of those servants a certain sum of money. Talents is how they count in money. He gives each servant a certain number of talents. And their obligation is to invest the money to do something to have a return on the owner's money when he comes back from his trip. So the owner goes off. He comes back a while later. And the first two servants have invested the money. And they have a profit. So they have money on top of what he gave a profit to show a return on his investment. Well done, but do you remember what happened with the third servant? What does he come walking in with? Dirty money, because what had he done with it? He had went out and dug a hole and he had buried the money. Why? Well, because he was afraid that if he invested it, man, if you invest it, bad things can happen. If he invested it, what if that money got lost? And so he didn't do anything. He just sat on it and hid it because he was so afraid of the risk. He had no return to give to the owner and it's that servant in the story who's condemned by the master. God does not give us life and talents and time and resources so that we'll go through life sitting on our hands. God's given us all of this so that we'll make the most of it. So Solomon's saying, learn to live with the uncertainty of life. Don't be paralyzed by it. Here's the third thing. Number three, trust God and work hard. Look at verse 5. Trust God and work hard. He says, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. We're back to the uncertainties of life. And what Solomon's doing here is he's just highlighting how little we actually know in life. So how much we deal with wind every day. How much do you know about the wind? Do you understand exactly why the wind blows when it does and why it blows? How, how good are you at predicting the wind? If, if we went outside after church and I offered $500 to anybody who could tell me 10 minutes into the future exactly what direction the wind would blow from and how strong it would blow and how long that gust of wind would last do you think there's anybody who can make that prediction? No, I think my money would be very safe. We, we don't even understand wind. What about that baby growing in that mother's womb? Are you the one who fashions it together? Are you the one who decides the personality of that child and the strengths and weaknesses of that child? No. I'll, The wind and the baby in the womb, Solomon's saying, that's the work of God. And we don't understand the work and the ways of God. That is above our pay grade. That's not for us to know. That's God's doing, and it is a mystery to us. And we need to admit that. This is God's world, not our world. So you and I are never going to understand everything. Listen, we don't even understand wind and babies If we don't understand wind and babies, what would make you think you're going to understand everything in life? What would make you think you're ever going to understand why everything in life happens the way that it does? No. Life's always going to have mystery. There's always going to be things in life we don't understand. And faith doesn't remove that. Some people have this weird idea that that faith is what gives you the secret decoder ring in life. And once you have faith, well, then God lets you peek over his shoulder and you can see the blueprint. If you just have faith, God will let you know exactly what's happening and you'll never have questions and he'll let you know in advance what's happening in this world. That's not what faith is. Faith is not what takes the mystery out of life. Faith is what allows us to flourish in the mystery because faith is what lets us know there's a God who's in control, There's a God who has a purpose in all of this. So I'm called to have a resolute, unshakable faith in God and then get to work with what God's put in front of me. Look at what he says in verse 6. He continues with this point. He says, In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike we'll be good. You get what Solomon's saying? So this is how we live in a world with all this uncertainty. We get to work. We let God take care of the mysteries in life and we take care of the work that's right in front of us. And he gives us another farming analogy. So here's that farmer again getting ready to sow his field. Where should he sow seed? I mean, there, there might be a part of the field that the birds come in and pluck the seed away. So how does he avoid that part of the field? And there are parts of the field that will do better in dry seasons and parts of the field that are going to produce better if it's wet. So what part does he sow in? Does he wait, wait for God to give him an answer on how wet the season is going to be and then decide where to sow his seed? Now what does Solomon tell him to do? He doesn't understand how it's going to go. So what is he supposed to do? Solomon says he's supposed to sow in the morning and he's supposed to sow in the evening. And his point is, you don't, you don't know. We don't know all the uncertainties. We don't have a answer to how everything's going to work out. So he's saying, you go out from morning till sundown, and you just get to work scattering as much seed as you can. Because there's no telling what seed or what part of the field is actually going to end up yielding a crop. So he's saying, get to work. There's a lot that is out of our control, but there's plenty that is in our control. So do what you can and trust God with what you don't understand. And again, this is a farming analogy, but what he's doing is he's giving us a bigger approach to life. Wise people don't spend all their time fretting over things that are out of their control. We have a good God who loves us and who has promised that he's working everything for our good. So live with a confidence and a submission to God And then to use Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And you'll often be surprised where the fruit comes from. I'll just give a personal example. This is one of the things I'm constantly stunned at in ministry. Is the fruit so often comes in places I never would have expected it. There have been times where there's somebody who makes a profession of faith and I am convinced God's at work. I'm convinced there's this significant work. They're going to do great things for God. They're on fire for the Lord. And two years later, they've walked away from the faith. And there have been other times where I've talked to someone and I was convinced the birds had plucked the seed away before I got to the end. The lights did not seem to be on at all. But what I couldn't see is that God really was at work. And years later, they're still trusting Christ and investing in ministry and raising godly kids. You never know where the fruit may come from. So Solomon's saying, just scatter as much seed as you can. That's true in ministry. It's true in career. Just stay busy and don't spend all of your time on what you don't understand. Here's number four. Number four, and Solomon comes to this point so often in this book. Number four, enjoy life. Look at verses seven and eight. Solomon says, truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many, and all that is coming is vanity. Solomon's point now is not just to live life, not just to endure life, he's calling us in verse 7 to enjoy life. It's a a sweet thing to live in the light of the sun. You realize you and I are only going to experience a finite number of sunrises and sunsets in this life. So Solomon is saying, if you get another day in the light of the sun, rejoice in it. It makes you think of of the psalmist, Psalm 118, the verse that we've heard a hundred times. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's essentially what Solomon is saying here. God is good. Life is good. God has filled our lives with wonderful things. So enjoy the life that our good God has given us. Enjoy the wonder of life. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote, He who is a stranger to wonder is a stranger to God. For God is wonderful every way and everywhere And every how. I love that quote. God is wonderful every way and everywhere and every how. And God's wonderful in how he's blessed us. And so we should live life as if it is a good gift from God. And we should enjoy life because we realize how fragile it is. Did you notice in the next verse in verse 8 how Solomon emphasizes that the days of darkness will be many. And I think the point is your health isn't going to be there forever. Your eyesight isn't going to be there forever. Your kids are not going to be home forever. Your spouse won't be around forever. There will come a day when you won't be able to do the things you enjoy. There will come a day where you won't be able to work in the garden, if that's what you like. There will come a day where you won't be able to climb a deer stand. There will come a day where you won't be able to play golf. There will come a day where you won't be able to do many of the things that you now enjoy doing. So Solomon's saying, enjoy what you can in life while you can. Because it's not going to be this way forever. And that's true for all of us. None of us are immune to what Solomon describes here as the days of darkness. We're in a fallen world, and and there's not a single one of us who's going to make it through life in this fallen world unscathed. But thankfully, we know this world isn't all there is. Thankfully, we know that Christ... Jesus didn't just come to make this life better for us. Jesus came to ensure and secure eternal life for us. So where Solomon talks here about the days of darkness that we're, we're all going to face. The way, Christ, the way Christ secured eternal life for us was by taking the worst of that darkness in our place. Right? This is what's happening is Christ is hanging on the cross as our substitute bearing our sins the wrath of God is poured out and what happens to the skies as he takes that told the Gospels that the skies go dark that Jesus endures the darkness of God's judgment the full fury of it in our place so that now through him we're not condemned to live in the darkness we're not condemned to eternal condemnation because of what Christ has done so that now through through Jesus this life is infused with purpose. We don't have to live constantly in front. There's a God who's in control and is working for good. And, and not only has He promised purpose in this life, He's promised eternal life with Him. So to, to just sum all this up, life with Christ transforms everything. It, it transforms how we live now, and it transforms how we think about the future. The way Paul says it in Philippians is, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. When you have faith in Christ, it changes how you live life and what you live for. You don't live constantly in fret. You don't live constantly concerned and consumed by the uncertainty. You're willing to do hard things. You're willing to step out because you know you have a God who's in control, who's working for good. And we look toward the future with absolute security and certainty. So live for Christ. And live life to the fullest. That's Solomon's call in chapter 11. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Through the, all eight of these verses, Solomon is really advocating for a certain worldview. When, when you really know God, it calls us to a certain kind of life. It calls us to live a certain way. It calls us to live willing to do hard things. Willing to take a, step out and take appropriate risk, not consumed with fear by the uncertainty of life, but trusting in God, willing to work hard and leave what we don't understand to the Lord and with an enjoyment of life because we know every good thing we have is a sweet gift from the hand of our Lord. So where you see your life out of step with that, confess it to God. Ask God to help us live with the sort of eagerness, with the sort of joy, with the sort of purpose, with the sort of passion that Solomon is advocating for here. So go to the Lord yourself. I'll give you a couple minutes to pray personally there in your seat, and then I'll come up and close this.